I'm Conrad Marshall, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks. Join us as we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day, taken from the pages of Good Weekend magazine, and brought to life here, with a conversation between our editors, writers, and expert sources. In this episode, we look at food waste. The amount of food Australia throws away each year would fill the MCG ten times over, and we outperform other countries in what we throw away, which is a big contributor to climate change. But there are innovative minds trying to solve this problem, detailed in our feature story this week, Waste Not, Want Not. Joining us on the podcast to talk about the ways we can dispose of this problem instead of disposing of so much food is the author of that piece, freelance food writer Danny Valent, as well as Joshua Ball, the co-founder of imperfect produce distributor Farmer's Pick. And last but not least, hosting our discussion today about the many chefs, bartenders, suppliers and tech wizards trying to make a difference is Katrina Strickland, the editor of Good Weekend. Welcome Danny and Josh. Thanks, Katrina. Good to be here. Thanks, Katrina. Good to be here. Danny, the stats that you wheeled out for your feature on food waste were alarming. I think you said if food waste was a country, it would be the third biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the US and China, and that the UN estimates that 17% of global food production is wasted, tallying to almost 1 billion tonnes a year. And perhaps the most surprising thing to me was that Australia is an outsized contributor producing 7.6 million tonnes of food waste per year or 312 kilos for every person, which I think you said amounts to filling the MCG 10 times over. You're a food writer. Did those stats surprise you? Definitely. You know, I think as a food writer, I suppose you're often looking at the consumption side of food and the the glossy side, uh, the joyful side. And when, when you think that so much of food, uh, the energy, the intention, you know, the time that goes into not only producing food, but also transporting it and yeah, cooking it, the fact of buying it, taking it home, putting it in the fridge, all that stuff is the the thought that so much of that effort and so many of those, you know, tons of CO2 are wasted is, yeah, absolutely shocking. And did you feel in any way responsible as part of the food media I feel like I mean and there's been a lot written about it in the last decade or two we've kind of deified the chef and we've all learned you know from watching MasterChef and all these shows and and reading profiles that you know we're responsible for as well on and a lot of the message out of that is you know if it's not the freshest of the fresh it's you know almost not worth having what kind of responsibility should we as the media bear for this you know, we've kind of gone so far into the um, knowing about food and, and knowing about what makes a meal great. Maybe this is the downside of, of that kind of deification of, of chefs and cooking and, and the foodie life. Yeah, I think there's certainly room for a reckoning of of all of that. Um, I suppose you know I write across food from you know you know write about producers. Certainly do a lot of writing about restaurants, but also have done a lot of cooking writing. And I suppose through all of that, there are opportunities to keep the end in mind, like what is actually happening to all of this stuff. How can we be more frugal, more economical? You know, when we're shopping, you know, can we? not buy as much when we're eating out should we not be over ordering but at the same time I suppose yeah there's an onus on everybody that's part of this food system to think about quantities you know there's so many 
so much I guess there's a there's that sense of generosity and hospitality which we celebrate but when generosity means you know a lot of food that comes back uneaten it's certainly yeah maybe it is something that <laughs> should be more accounted for in restaurant reviews you know there's that whole nouvelle cuisine thing where you've got this tiny bit of food on a plate should we also be talking about when there's too much food on a plate well and even the way that degustation meals have become such a thing I was away for the weekend and the first night we went to a kind of degustation-y restaurant and you know that was four courses the second night you know we had an amazing guy cook for us and I felt all yesterday like I had major stomach problems because I'd had two (laughs) nights of more food than I would eat super rich but that's kind of what a special night out has become isn't it it's it's kind of gross <laughs> well I suppose there's a sense of hospitality equaling abundance and yeah perhaps that does have to shift somewhat there has to be more consciousness about the impacts of what we're doing in in every aspect of our lives and that you don't necessarily need six courses of super rich food it's kind of too much even if you want it at the time but then there's also the idea of <laughs> like clearing your plate and being a good, yes, being a good diner. Right. So look, there's there's a lot to balance. Um, and that's it, right. You don't not clear your plate when it's those kind of special meals, do you? You do everything in your power to trudge through it. <laughs> yeah, you do. You feel it's your responsibility, and that it would be rude not to. But also, it's tasty, and you want to. Um, Josh, tell us about you, Farmers Pick. What is it? And you set it up with a friend two years ago. What was the impetus? Yeah, so me and a mate, um, I guess on the food waste topic, um, started to really understand food waste in in our country, but also globally as a a massive problem and a massive challenge that we're facing. And how Um, was that? Were you studying? Yeah, so uh, so we were we were well, we were mates from studying, but um, we were actually at a a farmers market. Um, So we're walking through a farmers market, and we kind of had this epiphany um, as we were shopping for our our produce, and we noticed this: the carrots weren't you know plasticky or dead straight things were a little bit big a little bit small it sort of didn't really matter and no one really put much onus on sort of the the shape or the size it was more that they're fresh they're from the local grower and they're pretty tasty so that was sort of the main thing and then we sort of start, like started and to dig where into was that. this that was uh the the farmer's market down in st kilda right and what were you both studying you were both at rmit yeah yeah so we uh my background was economics and finance and yep. my and josh my business partner's background two joshes that's confusing uh it's, it <laughs> works both ways <laughs> uh and his background supply chain and logistics all oh, so, right um not not fruiters by heritage or <laughs> yeah or um sort of a profession but as we sort of understood this food waste as, as a challenge um we, we sort of validated this with like a lot of farmers, so about a third of the volume of food that's wasted is is just left on the farm. Mm. It's it never gets out the farm gate. It's ploughed in. It's left to rot on the orchard. Um, and and that's because it doesn't fit the aesthetics of supermarket request. What correct. they need is that right? Yeah. yeah, spot on. So there's a there's a spec that is set effectively for all fruit and vegetables, and that's around one's freshness. So it has to be picked within a certain time frame. Mm. It then has to be a certain size, shape colour so you know by the time you've gone through all of that um, you're left with a pretty large portion and, and it's worse in some lines better in some lines of food that's yeah rejected because of aesthetic pr- primarily aesthetic reasons very rarely due to you know taste and nutrition which is really what's what food's about right yeah um, so yeah as we sort of understood this and we verified it with with farmers we we're like what like what can we do here is there a you know a way that we can incentivize farmers and create a viable outlet for them to supply this into into consumers ultimately so 
yeah, Farmers Peak was born. It was a we supplied direct to homes across Victoria and New South Wales, uh, and we, so it's a box of yeah, fruit a, and veggies. A, yeah, it's a seasonal box of fresh fruit and veggies um, delivered to your door. And, and you don't get to choose what's in it. It's kind of what's no, around so that week. Yeah. The yeah, the impetus is really on like hyper seasonal, what like availability, what's in oversupply, what's just been rejected by the supermarket or what's been knocked back. We sometimes get calls from the farmer be like, Hey, we've got a couple thousand heads of cauliflower, like, you know, what can you do? Like they they have these tiny little black dots on them, like can you help us? <laughs> yeah. um, so that's the sort of stuff that we're we're trying to engage with with growers across across the country and yeah just start to change the, the focus away from that aesthetic focus away away back to what it's really about which is yeah quality freshness taste nutrition and how hard was it to get it up what what were the biggest challenges it's a pretty heavy logistics business mm. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> it is like physically but heavy but your co-founder is <laughs> Legi- an expert yeah. in this <laughs> yeah so that experience was um absolutely valuable a lot of early mornings that was probably the hardest thing so we were as we you know as you do with a side business you try and get it up outside of your work hours we're both Mm. working full-time at the time at the start for the first sort of eight nine months we're getting up at two in the morning going out to the the market and to to our growers and and getting produce and then packing it shipping it and going to work at 9am and then having a normal day yeah (laughs) (laughs) and when did when was it such that you could do it full-time it's been about a year now. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. And what? how many customers would you have now? We've currently got about 3,500 active subscribers, so we work on a subscription basis. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, customers subscribe and they'll get that on a sort of weekly or fortnightly basis. And do they ever say, like, say if there were black dots on a cauliflower, mm. how do you know that's not bad for me? Like, do you ever have that kind of feedback? Yeah, we've found a, a really interesting part of it's been the re-education of what what good is and what's acceptable mm. like you know i think i feel like whenever you grab an apple and if you do see a little bruise you're not going to say oh the whole apple's bad you like might just cut that out mm. um, obviously we st- it's like steer clear of bruises and that kind of thing but um yeah sort of re-educating on um what so- like size shape all of those things and the reasons why they're knocked back um, most of the time people can't tell <laughs> right and the farmer do you rely on them to tell you when it is problematic as opposed to just aesthetic yeah so obviously you can get kind of like pest infections and that sort of stuff that, that does wipe out whole crops um, there's not much you can kind of do about that unfortunately but um, they will yeah they'll sort of guide us on oh this has been rejected because of these reasons um, so we're able to convey that and have that conversation with our customers it's um something that farmers have all of them sort of say oh we don't really know our customer we don't really talk to them we don't really have the opportunity to talk mm. about our produce talk about how we grow where we grow um, all those sort of factors so I think that disconnection from the supply, the suppliers, the growers and the suppliers is such a big part of this whole issue. So I think if you had a neighbour that had a tree, you know, that had some plums that had a little mark on them and they gave them to you in a basket, you know, just brought them over from next door, while, you know, perhaps eating one with peach, with like juice running down their arm, you wouldn't <laughs> reject it because there was a mark on it. Um, you'd no. be feel so grateful. But I think this fact that the supplier chains are so distant, people are so distant from the source of, of so much of their food, it really... I suppose it doesn't let you 
it's tricky to know where to put your trust and I suppose we put trust in this perfect exterior appearance or this standardised product like a cauliflower should look like this, a banana should look like that. And I think if, um, you know, I think what you do is you connect people um, to the growers in a, in a closer way and I think that's really a part of reframing that sort of trust relationship we have around food and, uh, yeah, dismantling this idea that, as what we know as you know the perfect bit of produce can actually be yeah it's it's cultural it's it's econ- it's an economic and business construction not um not a way that we need to feed ourselves and don't you think it's also partly that we're also busy now you know back in say our parents generation perhaps one person in the couple was not working full time and so they could kind of you know, perhaps look a bit further, go to the market and then the supermarket, whereas so many people now, there's, you know, both people are working, you know, very full time. So even if they know that the apples in a supermarket might have been in cold freeze for six months or 12 months, they don't have time to do anything else. So if you're delivering it to the door, I think a lot of it is, I don't know, what's your sense, is actually a time constraint, not a lack of understanding or interest it's just that that a one-stop shop solves everything at once yeah and it's it's you know it's developed over over decades sort of 30 40 years you know photoshop came in 20 years ago and all of a sudden you have photoshopped apples and you're taught from such a young age that this is an apple this is what it should look like and maybe you've like you don't have the neighbour next door who has an apple tree, so you don't understand that that kind of how hard it is number one to grow anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, you know, all the different things that can impact something as it grows and what the marks are, what a mark or something could be created by. Um, but yeah, convenience definitely yeah. comes into it. People just like we just want it now, and we want to go as like little distance as we can to get it. Um, and I also feel like, you know, like. Our parents' generation, or Danny's and my parents' generation, were much more, you know, they were children of the Depression and that kind of thing. So they saved everything and, you know, stewed anything that looked off. Whereas we grew up really in the boom times of the 70s and 80s and and 90s where everything became disposable and, you know, um, I feel like your generation, Josh, is much more, you're kind of going back to the future, much more interested in recycling and um, reusing and, you know, from from op shop growth to this kind of thing. That is, what, what age brackets would your customers be? Oh, and how old are you, I guess, if I'm saying your generation? Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 90s baby, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we have a, a bit of a mix in terms of demographics in our customers. We see sort of mid-20s through to all the way to 70, I think. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think there's that, you know, Veggies, like fruit and veggies, are a staple in everyone's diet. Ultimately, or they should be. Yeah. <laughs> but I think um, I think the time aspect that you point to is really important, Katrina, because you know if you think about the time in sourcing the food and perhaps looking a bit further afield for it, but then there's also the time in the household. Whereas every if everybody's working like fifty hours a week, um, you know, and they have the apple with the bruise on it. Are they going to like? cut the bruise out or stew the apple or are they just going to, is it going to end up in the bin? Mm. Um, and, you know, and I framed the story around this pear that was sitting in, first in my fridge and then in my fruit bowl and, you know, then I put it out of the fruit bowl to make me do something with it and, you know, over the days it became, you know, um, a, a, symbol. Little, a little bit more a slumped and sad. Yeah. <laughs> and, but in the end it, I, I did stew it and I enjoyed it and it took me like five seconds. So it's, um, but I think it is, 
we are so busy and sometimes looking at a fridge full of food, you know, that's in a state of, you know, um, somewhat disrepair can just be stressful and you just clear it out and put it in the bin. And, it, you know, households are the biggest culprit in the end, yeah. which I found shocking. That's probably the most shocking stat that I came upon from doing this story was that we can blame the farms we can blame the supermarkets we can blame the supply chain but you know in the end the box really stops with us at home and it's re- and that is really about us not overbuying it's a bit like the overeating isn't it at a at a big meal like it's it's about what's enough absolutely we'll be back in a moment but in the meantime reviews help people find us so if you like what we're doing it'd be great if you could help us out Just jump on your podcast app and give us a rating to spread the word and let us know what you love. I mean, what do you think about, how do you actually calibrate the size of your boxes and what you send to certain size households? Yeah, so we we sort of did some research up up front um, when we we began and tried to understand how much produce um, sort of the average households will get through. So we've got like the sort of smallest aimed at your sort of single person, which is a really, it's a kind of hard amount mm. to uh to target because um yeah you've also got you know um vegetarians and plant-based eaters who will absolutely chew through a box by themselves that's intended for a family but yeah <laughs> um yeah so just trying to sort of match that up as best as possible and obviously there's always the flexibility to sort of shift around and get it right um but what we've, we've sort of found is helping people attack as you, as you were sort of saying about the fridge of abundance <laughs> um helping people attack that and educating them and helping them think about oh what could I cook or how could I cook this and uh, what could I use it in or or like also where should I start and yeah the answer is usually start at what's about to go off because <laughs> yeah. that's at the high, kind of highest point of risk yeah and I know that supermarkets do a little bit of not supermarkets say somewhere like Harris Farm in Sydney does the green bags which are exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about the misshapen sweet potatoes and things and they're a bit cheaper and, you know, you put them in a green bag and you get a different price. Are there any moves for supermarkets to do that kind of thing? Like your big main... I mean, I guess Harris Farm is a bit of a supermarket, but for other more mainstream supermarkets to do that kind of thing? Or do you think... They've definitely got the the supply chain and the suppliers to do it. It's whether or not... I guess they've got the will um, to sort of to go after that. Like, I think there's... You look at some of the products that they do have, you know, you've got your, your odd bunch, which is, I think... I think woolies, but you know they—you can only do it in a, in a kilo of carrots, and you know not everyone needs a kilo of carrots yeah. <laughs> straight up, or a kilo of avocados. So yeah, um, yeah. If the will's there, the the ability is hundred percent there. I think that the majors do gesture towards that. That I mean, I think people do recognise it as an issue. And I was at a Coles on the weekend, and they do talk about you know aiming to reduce food waste. Woolies does the same, but. When you look at what's actually happening on the shop floor, to me it's just smacks of greenwashing because um, everything's there and it's, you know, even as as, um, as you guys said when we talked about the celery, it's like the bins are constructed to a certain dimension and only a certain size celery bunch fits in it. Yeah. And so I think there's a whole lot of infrastructure and you can see how it would happen, you know, convenience, just-in-time delivery, all that sort of stuff. Like it's, you know, it's it's not like I don't think of them as like these terrible ogres necessarily, but it's like um, there'd be a lot of unpicking that needs to be yeah. done with the whole supply chain to allow for more variability. But, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, it has to come at every step, doesn't it? Like the customers have to be willing 
and perhaps help drive the change. The commercial operators have to um, help educate as well as get the infrastructure that makes this kind of change possible. Yeah. Composting. Can we go to composting? Because I got a compost bin and then I got told that it will bring rats to the area and then I got told that I don't have the right worms and I need to get the right worms and... All I could think was, why can't we just put it in our green bin? Because I know some other councils allow you to put it in your green bin and then they could, you know, have some kind of commercial composting and then do something really clever with it. Are we still really behind the times, Josh, in actually? And I think that's me in a terrace. What about if you're in an apartment? You don't have any chance to compost, really. Yeah, well, I think me and Danny worked out we're from the same suburb and neither of us have uh, council-run um, sort of organic bins. Do you think that's just insane in this day and age? Feels a little bit insane, yeah. <laughs> feels like a, feels like an easy win. Yeah, I mean, I think the closest we've got to it in our Bayside suburb is there's some like almost like community gardens. There's a couple of community compost bins, but I think they can easily get a little bit out of hand. There has to be that person who's going to come and like turn the compost or check that the worms haven't died in the latest heat wave. I do have worm farms in in the backyard and, um, I mean, I also live on the train line so there are rats that love to run up and down the train line uh, but I don't know if they're there. I'm sure they're not there because of um, my Your watermelon <laughs> rind. Uh, and I've, I've actually started, you know, trying to make my worms work harder in the process of writing this article because there were certain things that, you know, you're told don't put in your compost, don't put in your worm farm, like pineapple skin, onion Lemon, skin. Yeah. I'm just putting it all in and just seeing how the worms go because you <laughs> You just can buy the right worms at a garden supply store. Hardcore. Um, yeah, I need my worms to work harder. I'm really making a huge effort not to put any food waste in the in the bin. I mean, if you could put it in the great, if we had a green bin, then that would be handy as well. But um, yeah. I've got a household of four and the worms can handle it. In apartments, there are things called bakashis, like there are these kind of no garden um, access internal compost bins that you can you can use. So there are solutions for people who live in without outdoor areas. But, yeah, I guess you'd love it just to be as simple as putting something in a bin, but I guess it's not quite that easy, but... Perhaps it shouldn't be. And then someone else making really good compost. Like I'm sure the compost that I make in my back garden won't be very good <laughs> and I don't have a big enough garden to use it anyway. So, And I'm not abnormal in that respect. So I feel like we just haven't – maybe that can be another business, Josh, <laughs> another side hustle. You haven't kind the- of got it to the proper – way in which consumers probably would like it. Councils could make money from it. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, consumers always tend to convenience or that's sort of what I've seen at least um, over the years. But um, I think once you also get a sort of amalgamation of compost and food waste, there's some really awesome things out there that you can do in terms of turning it back into fertiliser, using it um, in uh, energy production, um, like uh, methane, what are they called? Yeah, like a biogas. Biogases. Yeah. yeah. So there's yeah. one of those at Future Food System. You know, we did a story in Good Weekend about Joe Barrett, the chef, mm. um, last year, Katrina, and she's part of this Future Food System project at Federation Square where they did build, from their own waste, they generated methane mm. uh, to then power a barbecue. Uh, so, I mean, it, it does sound like a lot of rebuilding of society, but honestly... That's what we should be doing. Not that hard. 
if I, we I put our minds to it. If we put our minds to it. I don't know if it's like to me, if I think about doing it, you know, at my house with my no spare time, it does sound hard, but it must be possible. Mm. And I mean, I think it's just a matter of where as a society we put our priorities. Mm. In terms of um, the other businesses, because you talked about Farmers Pick, but also quite a few other interesting things that people are doing. Tech's been crucial, hasn't it? Like the development of tech in the last 20 years. Tell us some of the ways in which that's really been harnessed to create an ingenious kind of solution to the problem. I think it's so important because it allows it allows scale so simply so people you know build a little um, platform to solve you know get some bit of potential food waste into someone's hand that can use it then that's something that you know hopefully can be scaled so one of the um, enterprises that I spoke to is Yumi um, which solves the food waste problem on a commercial scale so they have a platform where people um, at an industrial level who've got you know like a a truck full of um, cheese that's got the wrong label on it or you know a a ton of salmon that um, I don't know is close to its best before date whatever it is they can put that up on the platform and then potential buyers can look there and just you know it can e- they can easily be linked mm. up um, so there's it's at that scale um, that works really well in helping um, solve the problem of commercial food waste that at a consumer level there are lots of little apps that connect just the everyday person to food that could potentially go into waste so um, an app that I spoke to is forkful and they um, allow let's say a cafe that's got 10 muffins left towards the end of the day, pop it up on the platform. Then parents who are perhaps looking for a treat for the school lunch the next day could just grab that on their way home. So it's just this sort of, I suppose it's the immediacy that Mm. tech allows you to platform something that is at risk of going to waste. Because I mean, I suppose food waste, it's kind of an emergency, isn't it? It's not like in many cases. It has to be solved now. It's like it's it's now. Like it's not something that you can just like wonder what you're going to do within five weeks. It's it's, so I suppose tech is, it has that instant ability to, tell us what the problem is and, you know, find the person that might be able to help solve it. And what about you in your business, Josh? I guess it's all online. You order online. Both you order from the farmers and customers order from you. Is that right? Yeah, so I think, like, the relationship with farmers um, is is a funny one. Like, um, a lot of them are still out on, you know, out in rural areas. Mm. You know, NBN maybe hasn't got there yet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They're not quite as easy to get, but so, you know, it's more of a traditional... You, know, you call them up and you say, "What's going on?" Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. That's sort of where the conversation starts. But yeah, with, with sort of end customers and in terms of scheduling deliveries and managing that entire process, mm-hmm. um, it's become it's become a lot easier. Um, Is the tech side? Have you had to invest a lot in that? And are there a lot of niggles that you've had to kind of iron out? Yeah, there's a few, there's a few. I guess we've got a bit of a unique offering in the sense that it's a. It is a subscription which is, has been done to death in the in the tech space, mm. <laughs> but not necessarily in the physical goods space. So right. um, we have had to do some sort of building to get that right. Mm. Uh, but yeah, definitely, you know, it's just it's scalable. I think there's also communications have become scalable um, mm. to a different in a different way. Um, there's sort of been like yeah, the democratization of information per se, mm. um, being able to connect the farmer to the consumer. And the customer, and then the customer back to you know recipes, how to use everything in their fridge, how to look at like how to store food, how to you know how to run their pantry or their fridge. So I think that's you know through through all your social medias and the like has been like pretty revolutionary. Yeah. Mm. And do the farmers? Is there any concern among them that they're undercutting their own kind of premium price market or not at all? So I, I mean, farm. It's, it's a really good question because I think farmers have they have a fundamental 
fixed cost to run their farm. Um, and the more that they can sell of what they produce, ultimately will, will reduce their, their sort of fixed costs and mm. their ability to make profit on what they do make. So, you know, waste costs them in terms of resources, like resources in terms of seeds, water, labour, um, time, blood, sweat, tears. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, there is the potential that it could scale it back in the future, the, mm. the total volume that we create. I mean, I think we create in Australia, we grow nearly four times the amount of food mm. or four times the amount of fruit and veg that we actually can eat. So, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, Danny, the UN has all these targets. To be honest, I didn't know that. Um, is that, like, how big a deal is it that they have these targets that yeah. no one seems to know about? <laughs> It's, Other than those in in that particular area, yeah. So the sustainable development goals that um, were put out by the UN, I think it was in twenty seventeen. Um, we've got says seventeen goals. Mm. If you're working in this space, and I've come across a few different food people who are, they just talk about them as the SDGs. It's a given in those in that world, mm. and I think you you're quite right. Like um, among every everyday the everyday person, there is a real opacity to um, to that project. Uh, and it is a world-changing project. You know, mm. there's all those those goals are around um, reducing, oh, you know, like slowing down climate change. Like there's really nothing that's more important. Mm. And they're broken down into these. So 12 is, goal 12 is reducing waste and 12.3 is reducing food waste. Mm. And it's pretty much, you know, the it's very targeted and it's very specific and there are there's a lot of ideas on how to do it there's a lot of papers there's a lot of research there's a lot of um, resourcing that goes into it but but I guess the question is then what um, mm. so I think you know many governments around the world including the Australian government has taken on some of these um, uh, goals and put them into practice to some degree I'd say the Australian government over the at least the past nine years hasn't been you know, incredibly tightly focused on reducing the impacts of climate change. So it'd be great if we saw a bit more of a concerted effort to address these um, SDGs. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, the UR, the UN is massive. It's got a massive machine behind it. It's got a lot of PR behind it. But I think the cut through on the SDGs is um, is not what it needs to be for them to all yeah hit their targets, which are ambitious yeah. but necessary. And which most of us, as you say, don't even know exist. I suppose you don't even you, you don't need to know they exist if the um, if someone's if doing the, something about them. if the world around you is working towards them and you're just you're just part of it you know because you're buying an, an electric car or you know because you're putting solar on the roof or whatever it is um, you'd be you know without necessarily knowing it you'll be part of achieving these goals but I think the more people that know about it and know how sort of it's it's super well organised as a system of thinking then that's got to be better if it's better understood. But isn't one of the disconnects, I mean, you look at the election we've just had, clearly climate change is an issue to a lot of us because it was a big issue in the election, but people probably don't link food waste to action on climate change. That's that's a bit of a disconnect in our minds, isn't it? Yeah, well, this story is going to do a lot to change that, Katrina, because <laughs> everyone's going to read it and listen to this podcast. So, I mean, it is. It's. I think the government agency, um, Stephen Lappage from... Um, the Fight Food Waste Australia that I speak to in the story does talk 
uh, he did talk to me about the fact that you know they're a government agency that's working on policy and working with industry. They're not really working on comms to the public. But what he thinks would be great is a kind of slip, slop, slap type campaign for food waste mm. to create behaviour change um, among you know all Australians because that link is made between food waste and climate change, and it's something that anybody can be a part of mm. you know it's it's not perhaps everyone can't put solar panels on the roof but everybody can you know eat that pear well and i think that's the thing after i edited your story i went and made a banana cake with my old yes. bananas <laughs> but you know i might have thrown them in the bin or the compost if not editing your story i would have felt a bit bad about it but i actually wouldn't have thought of the climate change potential i just would have thought yeah. that's a waste of a banana you yeah know? so so josh what i mean this is obviously your space if you could give listeners one or two really key things to do to contribute to reducing food waste apart from obviously buying your boxes <laughs> what, what would they be <laughs> i wasn't going to highlight any self-serving tips <laughs> um look i think the first one is is really simple and we've touched on it is just eat what's in your fridge first like make mm. sure that if there's something that looks a bit sad or is about to go off find an outlet for it mm. eat it um, I don't know, even give it to the dog, whatever. <laughs> Just yeah. do something with it. Another one would be, yeah, if you, if you are buying fruit and veg, buy the, the small one. The the single banana is the most wasted piece of, of fruit on the on the shelf at the store mm. um, because it's not seen as bountiful and it's left sort of alone and it's this like kind of you know, yeah. sad little single banana. So grab that single banana and take it home. Um, and don't feel like you have to buy six knowing you won't eat six and they'll go no, off. Just get two. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Danny? Uh, well, I'd say a lot of people waste bread in their households, and that's something that we could probably be a lot better at. Um, so you could, if you've got a loaf that you're probably not going to get through a third of, you could slice it and put it in the freezer, and you can easily slice bread straight from the freezer. Mm. Um, it's also you can also just um, spritz bread with a little bit of water, and then put it in the oven for a bit, and that really freshens it up. Uh, and of course, there's breadcrumbs and delicious things like gramolata, and where you can, uh, yeah, just blitz up uh, stale bread and with parsley and some lemon zest and a bit of salt and um, it's a beautiful sprinkle for pasta or soup. So I'd say, yeah, definitely look at bread. Bread is a problem because you're apparently not supposed to give it to your worms, although I have tried. <laughs> um, but I think there are lots of things that we can do with stale bread. Yeah, that's such a good point. The the other ones also, like the impact of um, obviously red meat or just meat more generally is is just is huge. Um, so when that's wasted, it's just that much worse so make sure you eat your eat your steaks don't throw that up no. <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks josh and thanks danny thanks so much katrina thanks, great to katrina. chat about this important topic good weekend talks is brought to you by the sydney morning herald and the age subscriptions power our newsrooms to support independent journalism search subscribe sydney morning herald or the age if you'd like to read more about food waste solutions you can find a link to danny's story in the podcast show notes And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Carr-Katzel. Editing from Conrad Marshall, Tom McKendrick as head of audio, and Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend. Good Weekend.